Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. Our guest this week, Noah Rubin, pride of Long Island. He just won the French Open USDA Wildcard Challenge, so he has a spot in the main draw at Roland Garros starting later this month. You can watch that on Tennis Channel. Good result for, for Noah Rubin, 22 years old, and is trying to take that next level of his career. We talk about that. We talk about his decision to turn pro, what it's like to uh, be a run-of-the-mill tennis pro. Talk a bit about clay court tennis, his desire to stay injury-free, and why he is staving off all the annoying family members who are encouraging him to uh, pick a real job and uh, stabilize himself and go work on Wall Street. Uh, good conversation, good, likable player, and now he uh, will make the main draw of the French Open. So that's a nice career move for him. Good conversation. We'll bring him in now from Long Island, where he is based, Noah Rubin. So we spoke three years ago. You, uh, yeah. you were turning pro. You yeah, were, okay. uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was around that time. Was, um, yeah, you had a year, year of college under your belt, and I, th- I think you had said that uh, you left with a guarantee you could return at your convenience and right. finish up your yeah. degree. Uh, three years, how's it been? What's, uh, what are sort of top-line thoughts? Oh God, uh, it's kind of been. I've been using this word a lot, but it's been a roller coaster. Um, you know, I've still yet to have a full year injury-free on tour, so I guess that's probably. You know, I hate to say that's one of the highlights. Um, you know, I have in the juniors and college days. You know, I didn't really deal with injuries too much, so this is definitely um, a new road for me. And you know, it's it's been tough. I have to be honest. You know, coming back, uh, it was the 2016 season. You know, just twisted my ankle, and uh, right before the grass court season, and I was out for about five months. So that was huge. And then, you know, thinking that, you know, I'm going to have an okay season in 2017, you know, I, I fell 
after I qualified for the ATP in Houston, I fell on my wrist and I was out for about five months again, maybe six. And, you know, it's been tough. You know, I haven't had a lot of consistency playing, and that's why, you know, I'm excited to, you know, this is the longest I've really been playing for. So this is this is exciting, and I'm, uh, I'm excited to see how it all goes down. I got to say, we'll, we'll spin this more positive. You're, uh, you're headed to the French Open. You you won the, uh, the the U.S. you know you're the, you are USTA uh, wild card recipient. So, yeah, uh, you know it's it's been a, good, a great start to the year. You know I had a little lapse in middle, but then you know with hard work and the team behind me, we you know we really worked and pushed and we did some unorthodox scheduling where I went to Spain and Morocco, which I was probably the only American there besides when I was with Ty Kwiatkowski as uh, winning NCAAs last year, but. And people were laughing at me, but it's obviously paid off. I, I felt very comfortable once I got back on the clay in the States and, you know, and <laughs> actually play. It was, you know, the joke is I played a future two weeks ago and now I'm in the main draw of a slam. So that's that's kind of the ongoing joke right now. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, you say it's a joke, but I, I think there's a serious point there that uh, for, fortunes can change quickly. What um, what, what are the next few weeks like as you prepare? I mean, you, you know you've got this spot. It's a big opportunity you're you're playing in the French Open. You're not playing though in in Madrid and Rome and having conventional preparation. What are these next few weeks like? Yeah, so obviously a lot of flight changes were made and tournament changes. So I was supposed to play in the Challengers leading up in France or Portugal, and now um, I'm going to Orlando with my coach Carlos Spinovsky. So he lives there, and I'm going to be training there for about four or five days, starting the next couple of days, and then I will be playing the qualifying for the. Um, ATP in Geneva, Switzerland. So that's it's really exciting. And then whenever, whatever happens that tournament, I will just head over to Paris after. You have a wild card, which means uh, who knows where you'll be in the draw. Who knows? Let's, let's say hi- <laughs> hypothetically. We 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 don't traffic too much in uh, in hypotheticals, but let's do it anyway. You 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 get Rafa Nadal right off the bat. Yes. Very top line of the draw, Nadal Rubin. How, how do you play this guy? We were, we were talking. I don't know if we we had Michael Chang on last week. We were talking about Nadal's clay court run and what do you what do you do to beat this guy? I mean, re- realistically, what's what, what's your game plan? Nadal on clay, Real- best of five. What are you doing? Realistically, so I saw some stats and I think it was like, you know, it's it's over. He has a ninety three percent chance, ninety four percent chance every step every time he steps on a clay court that he's going to win the match. And uh, and I was looking over his. Full record on clay throughout it, and it was—it's almost unfathomable, and it's incredible what this guy has accomplished on a single surface. And you know, if I see that, first of all, beyond excited because everybody wants to play the greatest on that surface. That's just part of tennis. It's part of sport. You want to play the greatest to see how you match up. And obviously, I was lucky, fortunate enough to have the opportunity to play Federer at the Australian. Right. So to play Nadal on clay, I mean, you know. Not a lot of people have had a lot of luck against him, so I would just, you know, absolutely love the opportunity to go out and see see what I can do. I I don't know. I think it would be a lot of fun. Obviously, there's probably other draws that I would maybe rather have and give myself the opportunity to work into the tournament. I, I feel like I could have a great chance. I'm playing well and confidently. Um, so we'll see. Maybe in the Dell second round. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, exactly. Get get one win under your belt. But what? I yeah. mean, seriously, if you one one bit of X and O's, because I think part of it is. You know, the, the guy is just a beast on clay. As you say, his, his record is just its silly. But there's still, 15 years in, there still seems to be 
not a whole lot of game plan on the other side of the net. I mean, if there's one bit of X and O's that you would bring to bear. If I had to give one thing, I think it's just don't make it a clay court tennis match. (laughs) You know, you know, if you play 20 balls of rally, 30 balls of rally and you try to grind with him, you're probably not going to come out in your favor. I mean, this guy is ready to be on that court every point to hit 40 balls every point. I mean, so it's just, it's almost changing it, you know, taking away his time going for it. I mean, when I've seen Federer take it to him on clay, I mean, the guy is literally, he's taking every ball off the rise on clay court and just, you know, just making it a more hardcore match, quicker match, not giving him the time needed. I think that's that's the only way <laughs> to give yourself a little extra chance or something. Or uh, hope he's not feeling quite up to it. What uh, you you preempted my question, but I was going to say you you not only have played uh, majors before, obviously, but you know you've you've played Federer and, and played him competitively within the last eighteen months. What what did you take away from that experience? This is Australia, twenty seventeen. Yeah, uh, God, it's, you know, it gave me, first of all, he had a lot of great things to say, which he didn't have to after the match, and it just great, gave me a lot of confidence, you know, first of all, it's, you know, I don't get to play in front of those crowds too often, and which I love, I really do love doing, and it just gave me an opportunity to showcase my tennis, and I thought I played, you know, fairly well for being in front of that crowd in that situation, which I didn't, I don't have the opportunity to too often, and you know, I, I, re, I mean, obviously, I had three set points, uh, two set points in the third, um, which I would have loved to capitalize on. But you know, it's it was a great match, and I took away that I can play with any player in the world. That any given day, I feel like I can beat every player in the world, and you know, that's the confidence that all tennis players should have. But I think it mine grew exponentially that day. So, is there a letdown after that? Not not so much that uh, hey, I didn't, I missed my chance to beat Federer at a major, but just a letdown that. That was fun. I played in front of a big crowd. I had set points against the greatest ever, and now I'm going to Morocco or to you know, Hattiesburg. I mean, how, how do you kind of balance the encouragement of a result like that with the reality that not every match you play is going to be on center court at the Australian Open? Yeah, it's actually really funny. I mean, that was a huge conversation I had with uh, the guy I was working with, Stanford Boster at the time. Um He's like, just understand, this is this is not an everyday thing. You're not quite at that level where, you know, Federer, is there a practice where the guy doesn't have 3,000 people watching him? I'm not even sure anymore. So it's one of those things where I had to put things in perspective and understand that I'm not there yet and that matches will be played with four people watching sometimes and, and I'm going to have to still grind it out and work towards it. And, you know, um, two weeks later after that, I won a challenger, which was my second challenger title at the time, and that was a huge deal. And I... And I really thought that it helped me put, you know, priorities in order. And I believe I almost became more professional through the process. And I think just being on that stage and, you know, being with the best players in the world, seeing what they're doing, it it really has an effect on you. And, you know, I felt like it wore off. And um, it 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 was really great, you know. You have any interaction with him before or after the match? Someone was saying it's it's really jarring and he... He's he's a nice guy. There's there's nothing tactical or strategic. But he said, you know, I'm I'm going out there to playing Roger Federer. We're walking on the court, and he's chit chatting with me uh, as, as if we're old friends. Did you um? Did you yeah, have any interaction? I mean, he's, you know, I, I know a lot of the. I mean, the other top players, I've, I've, I know somewhat better. He's he was one of the only players that I did not play with him before. No practice, nothing. Never spoke to him. You know, in the doll. You know, I'm friendly with Djokovic. I did an exhibition with. 
Well, Rinka, I played with Murray. I trained with a little bit once uh, in preseason. So it's like I've, I've known these other guys. Federer, I never interacted with him on any occasion. So, And, of course, I was nervous for just what was taking place. So there wasn't too much. I, I could see that, um, you know, he was pretty confident in himself, obviously, and he was ready to go and just almost nonchalant in the way. I can see that. And then, you know, after the match, I just told him it was an honor to be on the court with him. And, you know, he said great stuff in the press conference. So... Uh, yeah, he's definitely a different aura around him, you know, compared to a lot of these players. You know, he has this godlike aura in a way, but uh, it was it was incredible. It's a merciful god, though, isn't it? Yes. So, <laughs> benevolent, desperate. Um, let me let me ask you about you. You mentioned your injuries, and it, it sounds like your injuries are of the of the fluke variety, and, and not of the the repetition or, or the grind of tennis. You have an yeah, injury like know, that, I've, and the, I mean, what, what's what's it like to go through that? You know, I've always tried to take care of my body. I mean, that was always a priority. I always tried to be professional, stretch, do everything I need to do. So, you know, it's just one of those things where, yeah, maybe you do attribute it to maybe my body's not strong enough, and maybe it wasn't that, you know, maybe in another circumstance when I was strong enough, I could take the hit that I did or the ankle or whatever. But, yes, they're all just, you know, out of the blue, and it's just something you have to deal with, and it's, you know, it gets you, you know, especially if you're not used to it. It's, you don't, you almost don't know how to deal with it in the fact that, you know, you see your ranking go down, you see other players improve, and, you know, there comes a time where you almost can't even do anything. You're in a cast, you can't do much. I mean, you can't even get better, so it's almost like I'm getting worse. And it happened twice to me, and, you know, it's tiring, and it wears you down. So that's, that's why, too, I mean, you know, obviously I'm not one of the only players that has injuries, and, now I know what it feels like. I, I, I have sympathy and empathy for somebody that goes through it. It's, it's very taxing. And and that's why I've tried my best to come back. And preseason has always been great for me. It's always been a new step. But, you know, I hurt myself. And then towards the end of the year when I'm getting back into it, I don't have the results I want. You know, I'm not in the same mentality, not in the same state of mind. And it takes a while to get there. So I think I think a lot of this has taught me what I need to do in those situations and and I think if I have the year I want injury-free, I, I can make the pushes that I need to, and I could see myself climbing up the rankings. So I, it's it's a great learning lesson. It's not one I want to go through again, but it's uh, it's done a lot for me, negative and positive, and I think it's made me the person in tennis where I am today that can get through anything. So I'm going to sound like uh, your Jewish uncle here. But I suspect you've gotten this before. When, when people say, listen, you're a smart kid, you're from New York, you're well-connected, like, go work for UBS, go work for Goldman, why do you want to travel the world uh, hitting a yellow ball? Uh, what, what's your response? Yeah, I'm like sure I you've gotten that before. that before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, what was your response, though? Uh, there's only really one response. I mean, you know, you can always say these experiences are unlike anything else, blah, blah, blah. It's honestly the only place I feel myself. I mean, when I... You know, if you're playing two out of three or three out of five, you know, if I'm at five all in the third set or I'm at two all in the fifth set, whatever it is, that competitiveness, it's truly the only place where I can get that rush, that true undeniable joy. Whether, I mean, obviously you want to win those matches, but whether you win or lose, you've been through something with your opponent that nobody can take away. I mean, it's just, you know, when I played my first five setter against Bjorn, I mean, it went from 90 degrees to 60 degrees, light today. I mean, 
it was just a war. It was just, we put it all out there and, you know, you hug at the end because you know that you just did something unique. You did something special and there's, I need to feel that. I, can, I almost can't live without that. The, that. That intimacy of competition. Yes. No way to, uh, um, again, I'm, I'm playing uncle here. No, no, no way, please. no way you could replicate that um, on the training floor. I can't see it. Uh, it's just, it just was never for me. And I have other passions, and they just, you know, I just smile when I think about those matches that I've been through, win or lose. And it's just that, like, I've worked my life to put myself in a place to just, just die in a tennis court, and it just, it feels great. You know, yes, yes, the players, I love it. It just feels great. I don't know. Do you, do you have a kinship with the, with the player on the other side of the net after that? Do I? I'm sorry. Say again. You're, what's your relationship? I mean, I'm I'm likening this to uh, you know to to MMA or to to boxing, where these these players feel like they go through a war with their opponent, and they've had this this intimate experience, and they now have a kinship. I mean, literally for the rest of their life. I mean, do do you feel an attachment to the player you played seven six in the third or went five sets uh, with, or is it or is it impersonal? A hundred percent, because you know people can interview you, people can talk to you, but the only person that knows what took place and what you guys have been through is the person on the other side of the net, and that's why, you know, I obviously we're not getting punched in the face like these boxers, MMA fighters, but people are like, why are they hugging after? And it's like because they know what they just been through and what they trained for and everything, and how incredible it is that they got to this position. And that's why you see these guys speaking, even the rivals that don't even like each other, like, I couldn't have done this without the other, because they just made each other better. It was just this incredible bond that even if you don't like the other person, you're just a part of. It yeah, just is. Been through, been through a war with them. What, what, um, so the, the, the biggest tennis cliche that I've come across lately, but I, I think there's, there's something there. I think there's substance, even though it's a cliche, is the margins are slim. Which, which you hear right. all, all the time in a different context. Um, <laughs> the game of inches. <laughs> yeah, ga- ga- exactly. I mean, that's that's the equivalent. And that margins are slim applies to one match where one player wins only, you know, third, we, we've both seen matches where the player who wins more points loses the match. And we've all seen, when Michael Chang was on last week, it was saying one, you know, Alex Karecha forehand passing shot, and he becomes number one in the world. Alex Karecha right. missed the passing shot, and he never got to number one. I mean, but I also feel like, what what is it? What's the difference between you and a guy? What's the biggest difference between you and a guy in the top twenty? I mean, everyone can hit the ball. Everyone can serve roughly the same and hit their spots. I mean, what is Diego Schwartzman doing that that maybe? What, what's the difference between you and a player like that? You know, you take away the injuries, and I think the difference that you come down to that you know, it's just it's two things. It's an everyday willing to put it all out there and improvement every day, learning that not one day is a waste and you will somehow get better every single day and work towards your goal. And, and I think that's what I keep finding at the top level. And then that's where I'm finding myself now and how, you know, I'm, I'm living and, and improving. And I'm, you're just seeing these best players every single day, they're doing something to achieve their goals, small or large. And then the second thing is in the biggest moments, they play their best tennis. And, you know, I saw that firsthand with Federer, and uh, through matches and watching, in the best moments, their best tennis rises, and they rise to the occasion, and it's incredible. And it's, 
nine out of ten times it happens, and you look and you're like, I can't believe this guy just hit that shot. I mean, we're at five all break point. Like, how did he know to go for something that risky? Well, it's not. It's he knows what he's done. He knows how hard he's practiced, and he has that shot. And his best tennis is going to be there when he needs it. And that's just that's that's the difference. I mean, honestly, we all hit the same speed. You know, from from fifth, from ten in the world to two hundred in the world, it's, it's very similar tennis. And anybody can right, take out anybody. Right, right. It's it's just minute. It's their best tennis will be there when they need it. And and every day they they work small or large something will help them achieve their goal eventually and it's it's pretty incredible and it's especially in a um, individual sport it's more clear because it's one person you can see what they do and you take it all in and that that's really the biggest difference I believe. But what I'm hearing you say is you you think that can be taught slash learned. It's not as simple as some players are born with it and others aren't. There's this ability to elevate your play when the match tightens. You think that's it's, that's not necessarily a constant. I mean, that, that can be improved. That can be improved. It's a confidence. I mean, confidence is everything. I've learned it myself. I mean, when I'm playing confident tennis, I mean, it took me to play a future to be like, oh, I can win matches. Don't Don't forget, Noah. And then you go out and you go from a future and then you win a challenger. And now I'm in the main draw. And it's just... It's just understanding that I put in the reps. I've done what I need to do off the court. <laughs> I'm eating right. I'm in the right state of mind. And it's just going to come together and just believing that. And you can only believe in that truly. Like deep down, you can only believe in that if you've done it. And if you've done it correctly every day. And then then when it's 5-all or when it's match point, you're down match point and you'll come up with your best shots and then you win the match. I mean, that's it's just truly believing and having that confidence. How much does that come from matches? How much does that come from practice and preparation? Oh, God. I mean, do, you, I mean, do you have to replicate that in competition, I guess is my question. Yeah, you do. I mean, you you learn from practice, and there's definitely different things you could take from both. But you need you need match wins. You need match practice. And there's, only a, there's a specific pressure that only comes, and you cannot replicate it in practice, and it only comes through matches, and that's needed. I mean, it's needed to get the matches in, whether it's at higher levels or lower levels. Just understand that I'm a great tennis player. I'm here. And it's just, it's just that confidence has to build. Then it's the reps in practice. Then it's the reps in the gym. And then it's the stretching. And it's just my body's in the best shape it can be, and you're not going to be able to break it down. It's just, it's just knowing that deep down, and that's huge. When, when, I, when I personally step on the court, and I'm like, there's no way the person on the other side of the net is better prepared than I am today. And it's like, you're going to have to beat me because I feel like I have a pretty good chance today. That's that's that feeling that allows you to go through tournaments and years where you're just, you know, playing great tennis at the top level. I, I suspect uh, it's it's hard to, hard to fool yourself, too. You, you, you can tell oh. yourself that, but you either believe it or you don't. Right. And, you know, again, truly believing comes from truly putting in the work. That's just that simple. What's your relationship with data? With who? Data. Analytics, data. empirical. I don't, I don't know. I mean, are, are you looking at match stats? Are you looking at, uh, hey, my you know, opponent has lost seven of his last eight service games when the set's on the line? I mean, are you – you consult yeah, data? You know, it's, yeah, that's definitely a new thing. So my coach I'm working with now, Carlos Bonatsky, he's big into that. He's big into, you know, maybe it's not going to decide a match or – Maybe it's just a point here and there, but 
if you can go in knowing all your homework, doing, I mean, doing all your homework and knowing all the information possible, uh, how can that hurt? Um, you know, me on the other hand, I've grew, I've grown up with just, if I play my game, that's all that matters. And I'll, you know, I'll learn the opponent's weaknesses when I need to and learn what I need to do. But, um, I've definitely grown to, you know, I, I watch, I watch film. Um, he'll give me like, the 90% of the time on break point, the guy goes down the tee or whatever. And it does help. It really does. You know, you don't favor completely. And when pressure's on the line, of course, you're going to go back to whatever you feel most comfortable with in your own game. Um, but it's definitely helpful. And it's, it's a big part of tennis now. And with all, with all the technology we have nowadays, you can get it down to the middle of whatever. And it's, it's just, yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. And, you know, you, you kind of be stupid not to use it, and you just want to be a step up in any, like you said, the game of inches. So if you get that one inch extra, that's it. Watch this transition. You you mentioned uh, how deep technology goes. Um, yeah. It also goes deep down the rankings. Uh, sometimes that is for, uh, for, for purposes that benefit athletes. Sometimes that is for purpose that benefit the underworld. Um, I don't know if you saw the, the report. Last week or two two weeks ago, about the uh, the, the corruption in tennis, um, you you played Grand Slam events, but you've also played some of these smaller events where the bulk of the match fixing and the corruption seems to have occurred. Have you have you run across much of that? Uh, I have not been, you know, personally not been in. I mean, but every tennis player knows about it. I mean, this when I I believe it was a year when I played Federer. Um, it was huge. That was when it was first coming out. They were first coming out with names. And it, it's it's not shocking. We know that it takes place. And, you know, we're not, a, not fully aware of all the people that do it, and especially at the lower level. I mean, we probably haven't heard of some of these guys, but it's there and it's relevant and you have to be aware. And it's a scary thought because once a sport loses its integrity, what else does it have? And and I think that's why they're working so hard to um, resolve the problem. Um, but it's scary. And I mean, there's reasons behind it. First of all, tennis players, I mean, this there's no excuse for what happened. I mean, I would never do it in a million years, and I, I would never forgive anybody that did it. But the re- one of the reasons behind it is tennis players do not make enough money. Sure, sure. <laughs> I mean, the reason why basketball, base, whatever, you don't see it or you don't see it as nearly as often anywhere close is because what are they throwing? I mean, $6 million, $10 million, why would they ever try to touch that? I mean, the guy at a futures level, he loses first round, he'll make $110. So if this guy is, you know, has no future becoming top of the world, blah, 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 you know, he could throw a match and... Some guy will give him $10,000. Who knows what will happen? That's why we have these issues. And that's why tennis is changing. There's new rules coming out. It's transition tour and all this other stuff. And we'll still have the match fixing. It's going to be there for a little time. It's going to take a while to resolve. But I think we're in the right direction to solve it. And I think the money's improving. And I think people are understanding that the ATP, they won't tolerate it. And they're really cracking down. And it's good to see because we can't have that in a sport because too many people work too hard um, to deal with this and to be hung up on it, so uh, you know, I'm I'm hopeful that it'll be resolved sooner than later. Right. No, I mean, I I, th- I think you you hit it though, which is your, you know, what, why isn't there this kind of corruption in the NBA? Well, the risk reward ratio doesn't make sense, and right. Um, you know, 
likewise, you're a top 200 player, and you, you've got a lot to be leaving the ethics out of it, just strictly as a as a math exercise. But you know, a, a guy got popped last week, and there's a big splashy press release, and he's being suspended. And you look down, it says he, his career high ranking was like 1497, and his career right. winnings were 2500 bucks. <laughs> yeah. Easy to see how a guy who's made 2500 bucks for his career might be susceptible to. Uh, dump a set for five grand but of course, um, yeah. have you ever been on you ever been playing though where on the other side of the net you're thinking to yourself boy he's missing a lot of forehands or have you ever sensed it on the other side from the opponent um i have not personally um played a match but i've i've seen matches where i'm like you know i don't know who this guy is it looks fishy and god only knows and we've been in some unusual countries and god only knows what is taking place? Maybe he's having an off day. Maybe he just doesn't want to be on the court, or maybe it's what you fear. Um, so it's it's scary because you see with your own eyes, and there's nothing that can be done. You know, that's just what it is. Yeah, I mean, my uh, my my soapbox is that tennis and the ITF and the ATP should do a better job of differentiating. You know, a, a top 200 player from a guy ranked number 1497. You know, if, if pro basketball had a corruption problem, I'd want to know, is this some, you know, Bulgarian independent league, or are we talking about the the Cavaliers and the Warriors? But, uh, right, yeah. Anyway. Um, so the, the, the biggest cliche uh, question is to ask a player, what are your goals? Um, but, but, you know, <laughs> really realistically, you've, you've been at this. You've, uh, you know, <laughs> you've, you've been here three years. You're, you're top 200. You're now in the main draw of the French Open. What, um, you know, I mean, sort of what what's – my goals. Yeah, I, don't, I, I have don't one goals. main goal. What's Obviously, that? you know, okay. the ranking has to improve, and I'm excited to see where it goes. But I gotta stay healthy. Like I said, I don't. I haven't had a year on tour, and that the consistency is a huge part of tennis, just to get the confidence and everything. So, if I stay this full year on tour, I think the ranking comes with it, and I see, and I think we're seeing that already. You know, I have two challenger titles this year alone. Um, so I, I'm just excited to stay healthy. And just to just progress, and you know, if I'm if I'm healthy a year and I don't find myself close to top hundred, then then we can start making adjustments. But I, I don't see how that can't happen, and you know, I'm looking forward to whatever comes. What comes next? Main draw of the 2018 French Open. Um, yeah, thanks. That was uh, good talking. That was enjoyable. I appreciate. Oh, okay, that. thank you so much. That was great. Win some matches so we don't have to talk about working at UBS next time. <laughs> okay. I don't need another Jewish uncle. Yeah, exactly. Stay healthy. <laughs> More important, stay healthy. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Noah. Take care. All right. That does it for this week. Thanks to our guest, Noah Rubin. Good conversation. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jamie Lasanti, whom we will bring in right now. You know, now that we mentioned it, it's just a given he's going to draw Nadal in the first round of the French Open with that wild card. Do you realize that? Wouldn't that be something? He gets Federer in 2017 on a hard court, then he would get Nadal 2018 on a clay court. Uh, what struck you? You you listened to that conversation. What uh, what jumped out? What struck you? He's a great guy. I mean, he's really engaging, uh, you know, really into our conversation. He was engaging with you. I really enjoyed all of his answers and his insight. He didn't beat around the bush when you asked him certain questions about how did you feel in that moment or how do you handle something like that on court, whether it's playing Federer or have you ever been in that experience where – Maybe thought someone was throwing a match. Um, you know, I think a lot of players might 
dodge those a little bit, but I felt like he gave some really good answers. And yeah. Reminded me a little of Daniel Collins, who we had on yeah. several weeks ago. They're of, uh, you know, uh, sort of, of of the same, uh, t- two sides of the same coin. Is that the cliche? Um, you know, two players who spent time in college, roughly the same age, roughly the same point in their career. Um, boy, you know what struck me was he, the way he spoke about competition. Hmm. Kind of a blessing and a curse to be an athlete, isn't it? I mean, he's he's top 200. I mean, he obviously has this, this extraordinary skill set that, um, you know, the, the overwhelming majority of us will, will never have. But uh, to do something that well and to have that extraordinary experience, I can't imagine what it would be like, though, to then transition out of that. I mean, it's very hard to sort of replicate what he was discussing in the office environment that you and I are looking out on right now. How he talked about why it's so important for him to play, like, and how he really, you know, even when he loses or when he he draws Federer and how he sort of makes that transition to, you know, playing that huge match to then maybe going back to the grind the next day. For me, that's really... It's easy to stay in it when things are fun and, you know, you're on the big stage. I mean, that's that's really what people dream about. But I feel like the hardest part of, of really any job is sort of working through that grind and getting through the the kind of times where, like, no one's really paying attention, right? And And he seems to understand that it's, you know, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And, like, for someone like him to have that kind of long tail idea of his career um you know it's impressive and it's good to hear that he's really looking forward to growing and he realizes it's going to take some time yeah i mean i think the other thing we see is that as these careers get longer i mean with every major played there's a new record set for the number of 30 something especially on the men's side but but women's women's tennis too i think that changes the math a little bit i mean it used to be by 25 26 27 years old you time to, to wrap it up so when he's 22 and he's still, you know, winning matches, losing matches, and then finding his footing a little bit, um, that's probably about normal for uh, for the for the arc of his career. Um, I, I still think it must be very weird. I mean, imagine the the analogous situation in any other profession where you go from playing in. I mean, he was in uh, New Caledonia earlier this year. He wins in, in Tallahassee where, uh, you know, lovely lovely city, but I suspect uh, they're not <laughs> huge. They, they don't need to grease the turnstiles to stem the flow of uh, fans. And now, entirely possible he could be playing, uh, you know, a, a big court at the French Open. Imagine that in any other profession where, uh, you know, you, you can, we can make our own analogs, but you're, you're doing brain surgery one day and then the next uh, you're, I don't know, doing, doing standard checkups. Um, right. Must be a bit bit of dissonance there must must be a bit jarring and and he has he he's known for a long time he's going to be playing so it's not like uh you know it's it's easier maybe sometimes when you go from like you said from the checkups to the brain surgery and maybe it happens in an emergency situation right so you just got to react uh this that's he, a good point yeah yeah he's got he's got four weeks now i mean to he's like, thinking about right. it um so if that's a completely different that takes a completely different mentality and completely different preparation um so when we talk about all this i gain to tennis right yeah i just get more impressed with how people handle things this it seems so easy when you kind of just float from the the top you know but when you get down into it are you uh you watching any of the nba playoffs a little bit yes not as much as I probably should be, but um, it's all right. We won't tell anyone. But uh, no, I mean, I'm I'm watching this, and I'm thinking. You think of this in terms of, of tennis, and some of it is just the money. I mean, 
Blake Griffin doesn't even make the playoffs, and he will make. I'm just picking a name at random. You know, John Wall right. will make more money than the top five ATP players combined. I mean, some of it is just the NBA is in a much different place financially. That's fine, but also the the guaranteed money. I mean, De- Demar Derozan can have a horrible series for the Toronto Raptors. And it's too bad, and it's going to be a long summer, but he doesn't have to worry about his ranking dropping and what this means for his endorsements and the, the financial hit. I mean, it's it stinks, and I'll go to Turks and Caicos and come back strong and work hard this offseason. Right, but he signed a paper that said he's guaranteed. Exactly. Yeah, right, right. So you get swept in uh, the playoffs, or you uh, have a knee injury, and every other week you're still going to get uh, paid. Very, very different from what Noah Rubin was describing. Indeed. Uh, um, all right, that does it uh, for this week. We have, uh, I, th- I think we'll wait and leave the suspense. We, we have a special guest coming next week. Um, if people happen to uh, enjoy this podcast, Jamie, what do you suggest they do about that? They should go on Apple Podcasts and write a review, subscribe, tell us on Twitter why you love the podcast, send some suggestions. We had good good guest suggestions that we will uh, try to accommodate. We'll do a French Open preview, hopefully. Should we, should we call out Lindsay Davenport by name? I think we're due to have her on. Um, we'll do a French Open preview before uh, Roland Garros and try to do a couple of uh, podcasts from the French Open. But for now, thanks to Noah Rubin. Good guest. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, John. Uh, we'll do it again. Keep the suggestions coming. Have a good week, everyone. Mm-hmm.